Welcome everybody to the 32nd episode of the Struggling Scientist podcast. This is a podcast by scientists, for scientists, anybody science adjacent and perhaps even hobbyists. My name is Susanna and I'm here with my co-host Jerome. Hi. Today we have another episode of Cutting Edge Research, but we're going to do it a little bit differently. Instead of going into one paper in a lot of detail, we're going to talk about a range of different topics, scientific topics, that actually made the news recently. And we're really excited to talk about all of them. So let's start. Okay, so here we are uh, with our science news topics. Um, Let's start with the first one, Jeron. Yes, so the first one we're going to be talking about today is nasal vaccines for COVID-19. Now, you might be wondering a little bit of why would we need nasal vaccines and maybe why is that even useful? Mm -hmm. So Not only for COVID-19 maybe, but also for other stuff? Yes, indeed. Um, So they've tried this for uh, influenza before, apparently, in the United States, but apparently it hasn't been that great of a success thus far, and there are still some limitations. Okay. Uh, Yeah, so the reason for potentially even looking at a nasal spray as a vaccine for something like COVID-19 would be that it would actually help in preventing transmission a bit better than, for example, getting a jab in your arm, as scientists uh, have started to uh, to suspect. And the reason for this has to do with the sort of the jab in the arm uh, vaccine uh, helps protect your lungs, for example, but it doesn't necessarily protect your sort of nasal cavity and oh. pr- as as well uh, as yeah the nasal spray would. Um, so in in using the nasal spray, you would actually help prevent transmission better than u- using a jab in the arm, and also nasal spray would be relatively easy to to. Cool. Would you then need both or? That they don't really talk about in this uh, oh, paper, yeah, but okay. you could theoretically. Mm, I mean, it yeah. sort of works the same as a booster, right? So, um, yeah. yeah okay. Would... Well, cool. And they actually say that they're develop. Uh, one team is developing sort of a nasal spray that is only the the spike protein of the coronavirus, so you wouldn't even actually need like a full attenuated virus or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it could serve as a booster for people. Uh, who... Oh, sorry. It does actually say that the uh, the sprays. Um, could serve a boost as a booster for the mRNA vaccines as well. Yes. yes. Okay. Cool. Okay. Well, next topic. Uh, let's go through them quite quickly. Is about how researchers grew living skin on a robot, uh, which I think is pretty interesting that they managed to do that. And they basically took a robot finger uh, and then made a layer of collagen on it, and then grew a cell layer of it on 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 it of uh, NHEX, they call them. And then really interesting is that this robot finger could then move with this sort of skin layer on top of it, um, but it could also wound heal. So okay. if you if you made a cut in it and then you put like a little piece of collagen again on it, mm-hmm. uh, it would heal itself back up over it. But you need the piece of collagen for it to heal then. Yeah, guess, yeah. Know. Because it's of course not a, not a complete skin layer with like the collagen that you already have in your skin, mm. like all the structure. So you definitely need... Uh, what they call a graft, but I mean they also do that in real wounds sometimes. So, mm-hmm. okay. but the thing that's really cool that it worked, and they also tested something funny, where they had either dermis cells only or dermis and epidermis, and then you could really see that if you have the dermis only, then the then if if the finger touched something, it would stick to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you also have the epidermis, it would actually repel, like your real skin doesn't stick to stuff, right? Yeah. 
So that was, I think, a really funny experiment that they also did in this uh, this paper. I have to say that the finger itself looks a bit weird and palish and um, not too good. Yeah. Uh, but the reason that they wanted to do this was to see if they, in the future, can make robots that have like these benefits of real skin instead of just some plastic or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, really cool, I think. No, for sure. Um, so how big, do you have any indication of how big this sort of graft situation was, though? I mean, I can imagine it's easier to get some plastic than it is to get an entire... You mean how they grew it, or...? Yeah, the thing that they grew the, the, the cells on, right? Like I think finger was just like... Uh... Let me see. It was the size of a of a petri dish, but oh, okay. I think it's a ten centimeter petri dish. I think mm, okay. so. That sort of fits like real finger length. Mm. And they they uh, so the skin growing happened in a contained uh, area with medium in it, of course. Mm. Um, but then afterwards, the finger could just stay out. They didn't have to stay in medium or whatever. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, they they first tried it, of course, with a teeny tiny fingertip, and yes. then then the whole whole finger. Next it's an up. interesting paper to read. It also has a lot of videos that are sort of funny. Mm. So um, next up is the entire arm. <laughs> <laughs> Probably give them a finger, they'll take an arm. Well, I mean, the interesting thing is that this finger can actually move around and everything, and mm. the skin stays on it. So yeah. Mm. Yes. Okay. Cool. Okay. Well, next topic. Yes. Yeah, so here they decided to look at whether mosquitoes preferred to sleep or dine when they are sleep deprived. Okay. Yes, I was also wondering that. <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out that insects also suffer from instances of like uh, drowsiness uh, when they are also sleep deprived. So they, uh, the examples that they give are like honeybees struggle to do their sort of waggle dance if they're sleep deprived and. Uh, fruit flies apparently show memory loss, I guess. <laughs> that is so cute, though, thinking about a bee sleeping. I never I never thought about insects having to sleep. Yeah, me neither, and especially not mosquitoes. I always think that they're always just, you know, going through life being pests, but... Yeah, I guess there's more to life than just being a pest. Yes. <laughs> Quote that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's actually interesting. So in this thing that they talk about, it's... One of the major challenges was actually to determine if a mosquito was sleeping or not, because oh. it does when they they sleep, it looks pretty much the same as when they're just sort of lying somewhere and resting. Just they're still <laughs> completely awake. But so they actually had to like examine it in detail using uh, infrared cameras, I believe, and stuff like that uh, in a tiny tube to really see like, oh, but when when we look at the mosquito clearly, you see that it sort of like lowers his body even closer to the ground and then that that's when it's really sleeping. Oh. Yeah, so they really needed to look in detail like that to find out that the mosquito was sleeping. Um, and then they tried to sleep deprived mosquitoes for 12 hours. <laughs> um, How? Uh, in tiny tubes that they kept shaking every, I poor, believe, five... Poor, poor mosquitoes! <laughs> yes. I was also like, okay, okay, that's a thing. I mean... Do, do mosquitoes sort of fall under the same sort of jurisdiction as like... No. 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 I mean, fish already don't, so... Yeah, exactly. I don't think mosquitoes do either. Good for them. Mm-hmm. The mosquitoes can suffer. Although, like... there was this recent thing where bees are now part of fish. Mm-hmm. So, 
Ah, yes. I mean. <laughs> Anything can happen. Anything can happen. Yeah, so But they, back to the mosquitoes, yes. yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, they sh shook the mosquitoes for basically five minutes every 12, uh, for 12 hours to induce sort of sleep deprivation uh, with these tiny sort of vibration pulses. And then they had a host... They, they tried seeing how, if the mosquitoes were interested in sort of a heated pad with like some sweat on it um, to sort of give the uh, uh, sort of uh, mimic a human. Mm -hmm. And in another in experiment, they had a plucky human volunteer, as they uh, <laughs> say. <yes. laughs> a plucky? A plucky human volunteer, yes. Uh, okay. Offered up a leg to be fed on for five minutes by sleep-deprived and well-rested uh, mosquitoes. Um, I hope this human got paid well. <laughs> probably a PhD student in the US oh. or something. I don't know. Um, but yeah, they had 10 insects per batch go onto uh, leg, left, red, left leg and right leg <laughs> because oh. controls. <laughs> uh, and they had three different types of mosquitoes as well. Uh, and they noticed that uh, two of the types of mosquitoes actually in their first experiment where they just sort of sleep deprived them. Uh, weren't as interested in humans anymore. They preferred to sleep. Uh, one of them actually, one of these types of mosquitoes, the, let me see what it was called again. The Culex pipins, I believe it is. No, sorry, wrong one. The Anopheles stephensi didn't actually react at all to anything. So in terms of like <laughs> sleep deprivation, it'll just keep getting at you. <laughs> but the other two, the Egypti and the, the pipins, it, they seem to suffer from the sleep deprivation and then be less interested in chowing down on people, people legs, plucky human legs, as it were, uh, okay. when they are sleep deprived. <laughs> okay. Yes. Uh, and quite a bit uh, less. And I honestly, when reading this, was like, okay, this is cool. Um, how would you, because they, they, in the conclusion sort of thing, they say like, this could be a great um this is great information for helping us sort of combat infections and diseases spread by mosquitoes and knowing their circadian rhythm. And I was like, are you going to sleep deprive every mosquito in the world to do this? But yes, yeah. yes, that's what we're going to do. Yes. It, <laughs> you know, you got to sell your research sometimes. And this, yes. this is one of them, I guess. Uh, okay. So. Well, interesting to know about though. Yes, mosquitoes can be sleep deprived. Never knew, never knew. We are very excited to be able to introduce you to our new sponsor, Jenny AI. Not only does Jenny make our podcast possible, it also makes our life as scientists so much easier. Jenny is an all-in-one writing assistant that has everything that we have been missing in other AI tools. Yes, first off, unlike other AI tools, it actually finds accurate information in papers and cites its sources. It does not make things up and only uses real verified information that you can then also check the source of. Second, it's a writing assistant trained for academic papers and helps you write your paper by suggesting the next sentence or the end of your sentence. Or, if you get really stuck, you can ask it to write an entire paragraph, completely removing the writer's block I so often struggle with when I don't know the right words to make my point. It helped me write an introduction to a paper I've been struggling with in half an hour. It even suggests which papers to cite. You can add your own library or search the entire internet for papers, just type the add symbol to easily add a reference and it gets automatically added to the reference list. And the last thing we absolutely love is that it has an AI chatbot that can see your document and give feedback on how to improve your manuscript. Or you can ask it questions, such as what are the potential therapeutic benefits of dot dot dot, and it will search through the papers for you for the answer. 
I can only say that my stress level has gone down significantly since I started using Jenny. Check out the free version now at thestrugglingscientist.com slash Jenny. And if you love it, use the code SCIENCE20 for a 20% discount. Okay, next topic. Um, researchers found that uh, there are some medicines combinations in uh, with ibuprofen mm. that can cause permanent kidney damage. And they weren't known before. Uh, and the whole thing is that they are quite often used medicines. Uh, it's a diuretic, um, which makes you pee more if you accumulate water in your body. And uh, a renin agonistensin system inhibitor that's used for high blood pressure. Mm-hmm. And if you use them with ibuprofen, it's very dangerous for your kidneys and can do permanent kidney damage. At least that's what they think. Because what they actually did to find this is use uh, a computer simulator simulated drug trial uh, to see interactions between drugs uh, and the impact on kidneys. Um, so it's really interesting that even with a computer-based system, they could find these these drug interactions and and predict that these these drugs in combination might be very toxic. Uh, now, of course, this needs to be examined more. Mm-hmm. But the scientists were really excited about the method itself because if you can, of course, computer modeling to allow uh, medicine compatibility mm-hmm. uh, instead of performing long and expensive trials, of course, they do need to happen afterwards, probably. Mm-hmm. But it can really uh, look for these drug interactions that maybe you won't immediately see in the human body because if you have already hypertension and you already are using blood pressure lowering drugs then kidney failure is just something on the list that can happen without actually knowing that this might come because of the combination because of ibuprofen. And of course, ibuprofen is something that people can just buy easily and use as a a painkiller. But most people don't think about how these could actually interact with their other medicines and that they could have a bad effect. So yeah, really interesting, I think. No, for sure. Yeah, I don't really have a follow-up to that. Uh, I think uh, I do know, for example, more like something like AI is being used more to for drug discovery, but I didn't know that they were also being used for sort of drug compatibility or drug yeah. uh, consequences, as it were. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm not sure if this was AI. Mm, computer simulated drug trials. Yeah, uh, no. I don't know, but it, I thought it was interesting to at least make you aware of that even these common drugs that are used quite often are not without side effects. And mm. even if they are without side effects themselves, also take into account all the other stuff that you're taking. Mm. I would have to imagine there's some form of machine learning or AI involved. Otherwise, yeah. there's some poor PhD student out there like, okay, next one on the list uh, mm-hmm. model. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yes. Okay, cool. So on to the next one then. Yes. So our next topic is on, you probably have heard about this and seen the pictures come, uh, come around uh, as of May 12th, but that scientists have finally taken an image of the black hole at the heart of the Milky Way. Oh, yeah. Yes. So, uh, well, astronomers really uh, announced on May 12th that they, they have... Scientists. Well, yes. Well, <laughs> and let me correct myself. They already had pictures before, but they finally all put, put it all the data they had together to construct the image by uh, on May 12th this year. Okay, great. Uh, and it's a super massive black hole at the center of our galaxy, and it's known as uh, Sagittarius A. Um, 
And what's actually interesting about Sagittarius A is that it has a very sort of faint, uh, how do they describe it? sort of and quiet sort of silhouette around it, the, the accre accretion, accretion disc. That's sort of where it's sucking up all the gas around it. And you can sort of still see how light and stuff like that is bending around the black hole because you can't obviously image a black hole itself because it's eating up all of the light. Um, and while it's also the, the most well-studied black hole, most well-studied black hole because it's also the closest one um, at 20, okay. 27,000 light years. So everyone who studies a black hole mostly studies it. And it's interesting because when comparing it to another massive black hole that is also well studied, uh, the M87, mm -hmm. um, the M87 sort of spews out gas and uh, light uh, at some moments, um, while Sagittarius A doesn't at all. It's really just sort of this quiet, quiet, faint giant, as it's being described by the scientists. Okay. And yeah, that's that's obviously weird, and they they, they want to research that more. And they want to try and figure out if they can sort of use that sort of faint layer around it, that accretion disk, to understand what's actually happening. Um, they sort of des describe it as you can sort of see the froth that's sort of on top of the ocean waves. And if, uh, you're trying, as scientists, they're trying to understand the froth to hopefully better understand what's happening with the waves beneath it. That's sort of their level of like under trying to understand mm. black holes right now with all the telescopes that they have aiming at it. And I like the comparison that they drew in the article about how much data actually goes into like researching a black hole because they had to combine 3.5 petabytes of data, which they say is equivalent to a 100 million TikTok videos. <laughs> okay. Yes, that to give you some context, I still have no idea how much that actually would be in terms of, yeah, it, it, that's a hard number to grasp. Yes, uh, indeed. Yeah. So. Yeah, we finally have a, a a good picture, well, good picture of Sagittarius A, that black hole that if there was one that was going to kill us anytime soon, it would probably be it, given that it's the closest one. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, P.S., by the way, uh, they also use these pictures of Sagittarius A to um, do some testing on general, relativity, general relativity by Einstein. Mm -hmm. uh, I have no idea how they actually do this. I'm not a physicist. Um, but the theory of Einstein holds true. Uh, ah, it passed. Okay. So, uh, yes, we still have physics. Interesting also to know that not all black holes are the same. Yes. I don't know what that means, but it's interesting to know. Well, I mean, it's, it's more, I guess, on the terms of how do you detect them and what they're really doing. Like, for example, that M87 is spewing out jets of gas somehow mm -hmm. for some reason and we have no clue why uh i have no clue why maybe some physicists know why <laughs> <laughs> i don't think we know that much about black holes yet as 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 humans no indeed no no but uh yeah this is cool uh sagittarius hey learned a new name learned uh knew about the black hole saw the picture but uh have yeah. a little bit more insight now cool now my next topic also is uh, spacey but a little bit closer to home so there are actually some researchers that for the first time ever uh, grew some plants in actual moon dirt. And the reason that this hasn't been done before is that these samples of moon dirt are super rare and we only have a tiny bit. So Na NASA never really wanted to um, share those. Let's say that. Yeah. Now, researchers have been for a long time trying to mimic moon dirt by using volcan volcanic ash sort of dirt. Mm -hmm. But it's really not the same as like real moon dirt because 
real moon dirt is mostly just it's it's like powder really mm. and it has razor sharp bits that are full of metallic iron mm. that hasn't been oxidized yet because no oxygen on the moon yeah and the oxidized kind is actually the type that is useful for plants mm. uh it's also full of tiny glass shards shards that are forged by space rocks okay uh, that attack the moon basically mm-hmm. uh, and it is not full of nitrogen and phosphor and all the stuff that most plants need to grow. Yeah. So it's really not good dirt to mm. grow plants in. Um, challenging. Challenging, <laughs> yes. So it was really unclear that even though even though scientists have become really good at uh, growing plants in this fake moon dust that's mm-hmm. made of earthly materials, mm-hmm. uh, no one actually knew if like baby plants could grow and sprout in in real moon dirt. So uh, there's these researchers that got teeny tiny amounts of dirt and they grew, I think they got three grams of it in total. What? <laughs> Is that enough to grow anything? Well, they grew teeny tiny plants. So they took a plant that can, can have like one gram of dirt in a 48 well plate. Okay. And then they had like three, three wells for the moon dirt and, and then they also used four wells of the control fake moon dirt that was made of earthly materials that they already knew what wor- work would work mm-hmm. and that they tried to grow these teeny tiny plants in both of them uh now let me check what plants they used a palm tree uh, oh no they had a little bit more dirt so the, the team had uh four pots of moon dirt that was returned by apollo 11 okay and another four from apollo 12 Mm-hmm. Uh, and a final four of dirt from Apollo 17. So they got four grams of dirt from each of these um, trips. And they were also from different regions of the um, moon. And they were also treated a bit differently because they were different mm. groups. And it worked. So they could sprout these teeny tiny plants that I'm still looking for the name for. Oh yeah, cress. T- tail cress they tried to grow. Okay. Uh, and they had this this four grams of dirt per uh, times three from three different trips to the moon. Mm-hmm. I think it worked in all pots of lunar dirt, uh, but not as good as those that were like in the fake moon dirt. Did um, they, uh, maybe it's not clear from the article, did they use just also normal dirt to have like as a control of like no, how... No, I think they used the moon dirt, the fake moon dirt as mm. a control. Which was the volcano ash or yes. something else? Oh, okay, yes, yeah. uh, But they did a lot better in this volcano ash than they did in the actual moon dirt. Mm. Uh, they they sprouted, which is already amazing, but they mm. were sort of teeny tiny. Mm-hmm. And there were some that already were also like a little bit purplish. Pur- Mm. which is a red flag for plant stress. Uh, and then they also uh, arnesicked these, uh, these, oh, okay. these uh, plants, I think, because they looked at the, at the, at the gene- genetic expression mm-hmm. and they saw uh, a lot of different genes that have to do with plants struggling with stress from salts, metal, and reactive oxygen species. Mm. So they had a very stressed genetic profile. Yeah. Uh, so not happy plants, but they did sprout. Um, yeah. So that's already something that's better than what we knew, I guess. No, for sure. Um, um, I'm just sort of wondering, though. We're, maybe you don't know this plant all, all that well, but is this plant actually useful or is it just... It was mostly selected because it can grow so, in these teeny tiny amounts. Yeah. 
And they also say that maybe a spinach type, which is very salt tolerant, mm. uh, could maybe better grow in lunar lunar dirt. Ah, so Popeye can live on. Uh, <laughs> I f- I feel like he went to the moon. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. But well, I mean, I mean, first time ever that they yeah. tried this in actual moon dirt, and at least they sprouted. So. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I would also be interested. Obviously, they have very limited samples of the m- the moon dirt, right? So mm-hmm. you can only do so much with that. But it would be interesting to see if, like, you know, you can sort of supplement it with, I don't know, like some of the missing pieces that it it would need to grow other plants. I think they first want to select now for plants that can actually grow in it. Mm. Um, Because the whole point of it is, of course, to make lunar missions that are able to be more extensive Mm -hmm. happen. And if you need to bring already a lot of stuff, that is less good. Mm -hmm. Um, But they are working on it, so. No, for sure, for sure. No, I'm just thinking, like, you know, obviously at some point, uh, once all that is set up, you would want to grow other stuff that probably would already would struggle uh, under those yeah, conditions. Yeah, but then you need to work with what you already have yes, there, yes, like yes. waste and mm. and compost, maybe. Yeah. But I don't know if composting actually works on the moon. Yeah. Because, <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot to be figured out for uh-huh. moon travel. Come on, Elon Musk. <laughs> well, he doesn't want to go to the moon, so. No, he wants Mars, yes. He wants Mars. He just flew past the moon. Yeah, I don't know if plants can grow on Mars dirt. that's the next paper yes (laughs) (laughs) okay next topic yes so our next uh topic is on dog breed is a surprisingly poor predictor of individual behavior of dogs okay yes so it's probably if you've ever had a dog you probably know that uh the breed is frequently associated with its behavior. So, for example, the mm-hmm. American Kennel Club describes Border Collies as affectionate, smart, and energetic, while Beagles are friendly, curious, and merry. Okay, yeah. Um, and while that sort of is a commonly held uh, belief, uh, this uh, group of researchers wanted to actually test that using also genetic information from more than 2,000 dogs paired with self-reported uh, surveys from the dog owners. Yeah, that's what they did. And they uh, indicate that the dog breed is a poor predictor of its behaviors on average. Uh, it explained like the breed explains only about 9% of a dog's behavior, but you have a big range in terms of what you can, the actual behavior of the dog. And previous research had already shown that they, where they looked at the genetics and explaining the, the variation between breeds, uh, they could already sort of tell some differences between poodles and chihuahuas. Mm-hmm. I know, surprising. Um, but there was some uh, research already done to a certain extent. But in this research, they developed a tool called Darwin's Arc, which is an open source database with it, where they had more than 18,000 pet owners respond to surveys. Okay. And then pet owners just told them, oh, no, my dog is amazing. He's so I kind. don't know what was actually on the survey. In term, <laughs> I, what I do know is that they asked 100 questions about some behaviors, Okay. Uh, and, which the researchers then grouped into eight questions. Uh, yeah, categories, behavioral factors. And these mm-hmm. sort of include like uh, human sociability, like how comfortable a dog is around humans, but also a uh, new word of the day, biddability, how, respons- uh, how responsive it is to commands. Okay. Um, so uh, those are two of the, the eight factors, for example. Uh, and yeah, they collected the data, the genetic data of like 2,155 purebred dogs and some also mixed breed dogs to sort of really try to untangle what is uh, 
the specific breed, uh, specific to the breed, and also what gets mixed up um, in other breeds, uh, uh, and shed light on the ancestry effects of the behaviors as well. Okay. Um, so what they managed to find is that with the surveys and the genetic data that they identify some genes associated with particular traits, uh, the most heritable behavioral traits were the human sociability and mm -hmm. some motor patterns like howling and retrieving. Those were the, some of the most uh, heritable traits among dogs. So those had to do with the breed also? Yes. Yeah, okay. But again, their main conclusion was only 9% of the behavioral differences between breeds are heritable. So mm -hmm. even if you hear like the difference between a border collie and uh, a beagle, it's still going to depend on the, the individual dog a little bit, quite and a bit. Also, I guess on on training and mm -hmm. and yeah, yeah. So their main takeaways were that breed gives a loose guideline for what kind of behaviors you can expect, but it's certainly not a not a hard fast rule. Mm -hmm. And um, I think this was what one of the the researchers uh, said themselves. A puppy will show you how they are eight weeks old. It's just uh, your job to believe to believe them. <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> I feel like we made some mistakes there, but okay. <laughs> yeah. Well. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes. So that was that. Nice. Next topic. Um, it's about how in children, uh, a mom's voice elicits a different response. Um than other voices and this changes in teens which is interesting mm -hmm. so they they had children from uh, 7 to 16 years years old and they uh played voices for them either their mom or unfamiliar woman mm -hmm. uh, and it was no no text it was gibberish so tbudishawit and stuff and then they looked at the brain and which brain regions were active and they found that in children from age 7 to 12 um, when you play their mom voice, the, the rewards and attention centers light up. So their mom's voice really lighted up a lot more than the voice of an unknown wo woman. However, in adoles adolescence, uh, it is exactly the opposite. So then the mom voice is still there in the reward uh, centers, but the, the random strange women voices are suddenly way more interesting. And this shift happens between the ages of 13 and 14. Hmm. Uh, and they say that this is actually how it should be because in your teens you start exploring the world and new people and interacting more than like just your mom you know mm -hmm. so that's really interesting that there's actually a change in the brain reaction to it to the voices then uh maybe a dumb question maybe i just missed it completely when you said it but are, so they looked at males or also females? Only females. Only females, okay. Well, no, children are male and female, but they only looked at female voices. No, 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 but I mean um, uh, the, the adolescents. The adolescent teens. Uh, uh, I think they, they were both they're just children. Yeah, I, I, would, I would imagine uh, teenage boys suddenly <laughs> developing more interest in female, other female voices, yes. Hmm. No, I think I don't think that they just tested uh, boys. Okay. Just think they tested both. But oh. anyway, uh, as a teen, you're suddenly way less interested in your mom and way more interested in everybody else out there. Shocking. Which they call a healthy, a healthy uh, thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So okay. uh, now there was already research that showed that voice can have really powerful effects. So they also talk about this previous research. 
where they show that if you have a stressed out girl, if they heard their mom's voices on the phone, the stress hormones in these girls dropped. Mm. So that's good. And um, however, this was not the case for texts from your mom. So showing that really hearing the voice of your mom really helps you calm down in a way, even already in adults or adolescents. Yes. So it's not that that the, the mom voice actually becomes less in these reward centers. It's just that other voices become more there. So, mm. yeah. Okay. Really interesting that your brain changes so much in your in your teens. I'd be interested to see if they there was a difference between the 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 males and the female adolescents. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Or if dads also play a role. Yeah, they didn't look at dads. It was just the mom follow, study. Yeah, follow up studies. This was a mom study. Oh. Okay. So. Next topic. Um, so, yeah, the next topic is most silent genetic mutations are, harm- are harmful, not neutral. A finding with broad implications. So, okay. um, yeah, I don't really know how much uh, information people have on sort of genetic mutations in general. But one, if you have like a sort of single genetic mu- uh, mutation, a single nucleotide polymorphism uh, that can change in, that can lead to a change in the, the tree letter codes that uh-huh. code, for example, for leucine and uh, methionine and stuff like that. Um, but some of them can be... Uh, really change the entire thing and lead to a, a loose to, for example, my th- methionine mm-hmm. change. The non-silent mutations, yeah. Yeah, the non-synonymous mutations, as they call it here. But um, you also have just synonymous mutations where even if something changes, it still encodes for the same thing. So uh-huh. you still have loose at the end. And for the longest time, that it was believed that uh, this is not supposed to make uh, change anything because you still have the same loose in the end. Mm-hmm. But what this research group actually did is they wanted to question this uh, and they uh, used budding yeast to explore this in uh, further detail where they used CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing and constructed 8,000 mutants of these yeast strains Mm -hmm. and tried to measure uh, the effects of a large number of these synonymous mutations uh, and see if they just changing the... Leading, doing these synonymous mutations would lead to a change in their overall uh, fitness, their ability to uh, replicate. Um, the, the reason for using these budding yeasts is that they generate every 80 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, it's quite, it's quite quick, so you can do all, a ton of these experiments. So it turns out that, to their surprise, the researchers found that 70, almost 76% of the synonymous mutations that they introduced were significantly deleterious for the fitness of these um, uh, yeasts. And only 1.3% were significantly beneficial. But in any case, a large portion of them had an effect, even though what we've uh, fought for the previous couple of decades since like DNA and Mm -hmm. these different mutations were discovered. Yes, exactly. Uh, And if it can matter for something as small as yeast, what what would be the implications for you know humans for example yeah so but what what did they test on just self viability or uh re- reproducibility so uh, fitness so if the uh-huh. the, the um, how oh. well the the strain can uh, reproduce okay so if you have less uh yeah children um yeah yeah spawn yes i don't know what you would call the spawn of uh yeast, yeast yes <laughs> Uh, then your fitness goes down. Okay. So, uh, yeah. Interesting. This is definitely 
it, it's not 100% novel because for the last decade or so, they also say like some researchers have anecdotally mm-hmm. seen like every now and then there was a synonymous mutation that hinted at something happening. But with he, with this study, they really show very conclusively, I think, that maybe... Uh, yeah, it's a nature paper also. I yeah, exactly. So they really show like, hey, these synonymous mutations do have effects. Yeah, cool. Well, not good though. No, I mean this... Not con- good for research, but still cool. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it is good for research in terms of it really helps. Like, it's better to know that this is a thing than not know, right? So it, it just opens up a, an entire new can of worms that we need to reconsider. Uh, yeah, but I also know that, for example, in cloning, often often mm-hmm. uh, mutations that don't have any effect are also accepted. And like Yes, but now do you need to reconsider that. Yes. And even, for example, for um, maybe this is getting too... Uh, off topic, but uh, one of the papers I'm working on, we I also looked at synonymous mutations, um, and now I have to reconsider what I'm going to put in my discussion, given this, maybe. Yes. So, yeah. Interesting. See, And they, also, hmm? variability between humans. I mean, mm-hmm. we always look at, at SNPs, right? Differences yeah. between humans that actually have an effect. Mm-hmm. But I think we never really looked at the synonymous stuff. No. That can maybe explain a little bit more the variability between humans even yeah exactly and i mean uh they sort of say that it uh will affect the overall expression of uh Mm -hmm. the gene in the end yeah i'm not sure obviously without having read the entire nature paper i'm not sure whether they actually uh also looked at snips that are in non-coding regions for example for like uh, promoters and uh, Mm -hmm. stuff like that but i mean there's still an entire thing now uh, to reconsider if synonymous mutations don't do what we thought they did. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Well, that was actually our last topic for today. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this uh, new version of the the cutting-edge research. I at least did. It was really fun to have the chance to talk a a little bit more about different type of topics. And, like, Mm -hmm. uh, it's not as deep as we normally do, but I think we, we got to the gist of it. Yes. So, um, and, and I mean, I think it's still, uh, hopefully we've piqued uh, the listener's interest in uh, <laughs> wanting to go uh, find out more about these as well, if they're True. really interested. So if you have any questions or suggestions or comments or any papers that we do need to read, uh, you can um, contact us via either our website, strugglingscientist.com or via our email address, strugglingscientist at hotmail.com. Definitely also check out our website with our uh, fantastic new merch. Um, and you can also find us on social media which ones are those again Jaron yes so we are present on Twitter LinkedIn Facebook Instagram and a little bit on uh, Pinterest as well and yeah what Suzanne said go check out our uh, fabulous merch we have coffee mugs and amazing shirts so uh, also don't forget to uh, subscribe to our newsletter if you're interested ah, in some yes. uh, some uh, how can you highlight. find the newsletter also via our website right yes via our website but also on twitter and uh, regular posts happen regarding the newsletter as well so nice. um, yeah okay well thank you all for listening i hope you enjoyed and um, talk to you all next time bye bye